I'm excited to jump into God's Word. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to James chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. And we're in a series called Swing Your Sword. Uh, this is our third installment of it. And uh, we're going to be in James chapter 1. And so that's where you can be. If you have your sermon notes, hopefully you can pull those out. And uh, the passages are there for you as well. And uh, as you're turning there, and kind of want to share a story with you. Uh, a few uh, months ago, probably about two or three months ago, I had the privilege of uh, going uh, to meet with other pastors from around uh, the nation. There was about 30 or so of us. And uh, but then we were just kind of split into these separate rooms. So there's about 15 or so guys in a room, maybe a little more or less. And uh, different men, different cultures, different backgrounds, uh, all, uh, most of them, I think, if not all, were uh, senior pastors uh, from all around. And anyways, the first night we get together, uh, one of the things that came up, and I know this is going to come out kind of heavy. You're like, goodness, he's starting heavy, but just, just follow me on this. Uh, anyways, we were uh, sitting with these guys. And uh, the opening night, and I'm pretty much an introvert, just in case you don't, if you don't know me, I'm very introverted. Uh, if, you, if I'm at a party, I, I'm the guy that's, I don't talk to anybody. I can go to a 2,000 person conference and not find one person I know and be completely fine, you know? Um, anyways, so we're in this uh, room and, and one of the opening questions was about father wounds. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not sharing, you know. And uh, so everybody starts opening up about father wounds. And men are literally opening up their hearts about father wounds in their life and things, meaning, you know, that they have felt from their fathers or absence of fathers and all stuff like that. And so I'm the last to go, you know. Everybody kind of, you know, you know when you're like, you're trying not to be last. You're hoping that, like, the teacher says, oh, sorry, ran out of time. You ever been... That's, that was me. Um, and so, anyways, Eric, well, you're up, you know. And, uh, anyways, so, but, but while it was, it was happening, and this was all taking a couple of hours, it wasn't just over a span of a few minutes. This was uh, pretty heavy stuff in the room. And um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to this, you know, all these men share this stuff. And I had this thought, and I journaled it, and... In this journal, I wrote this, these thoughts down. I thought, every single guy in here has a father wound. And then here was my next thought. What wounds am I going to cause my kids? I started to kind of wrestle with this thought. And so all these men are talking, and I'm not paying much attention to them, to be honest. I'm in this whole thought about what are my kids going to say about me? And I started to think about this. I thought, goodness, is there any man who doesn't have a father wound? And immediately the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, no, because there's only one perfect dad. And I started to realize in that moment, I'm going to cause some father wounds. If you put my kids into a room and 15 now, <laughs> they got wounds. They're going to have wounds. And I started to wrestle with this. And I started thinking, how in the world am I going to, 
how am I going to do this? What do I do now? This is the angle I want to preach from today. I, I share that with you as just an opening thought because of this statement, that we've all been wounded by earthly fathers. If you notice at the top of your sermon notes, it says opening thoughts, okay? That means they're just thoughts. I know that you kind of make fun of me because I say key truth all the time, okay? But these are just my thoughts. These aren't necessarily truth according to Scripture. I'm just telling you some things to think about. But we've all been wounded by earthly fathers. Some were abandoned, completely abandoned by their earthly dad. Some have been abused in ways that no one can comprehend. Some were neglected, not affirmed enough, hugged enough, laughed with enough, told you're good enough. Every one of us carries a father wound to some degree. Some are great wounds. Some have been scarred over. They've been healed. Some are smaller, but there's wounds. Even those who've had good fathers, some would say. Some of you had some great dads. I mean, fantastic dads. But even those dads, no one can say they've had a perfect father. And even further, go further to say, Write this into your notes, if you would, for just a second, and follow me on these thoughts. Earthly fathers who forsake their earthly children tend to create earthly children who forsake their heavenly father. And I was coming to this conclusions, and I'm sitting there thinking about these things, and I start to realize the impact that earthly fathers have on their perspective of their heavenly father. Which led me to the second realization, which is our view of our earthly father impacts, and I've heard it said before, impacts, you can write that word in, our view of our heavenly father. There just seems to be a direct correlation. Oftentimes, the way that we view God is often impacted by the way we view our earthly father. And if our earthly father abandoned us, well, then our heavenly father will abandon us. If our earthly father doesn't think we're good in us unless we do A, B, and C, then our Heavenly Father sees us the same way. We have to kind of perform our way into his presence. We have to perform our way into uh, affirmation. Which, by the way, isn't true because don't you know that before Jesus ever did any part of his ministry, Jesus was there getting baptized and the Father showed up and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased before he ever even accomplished what the Father called him to do. Which, by the way, should tell you that God is not moved by your accomplishments. He's not a dad who will ever prove more of you by what you do for him. That should set somebody free in the root who, who maybe had a dad. I was just trying to seek dad's approval all the time. Isn't it good news right out of the gate to know that you serve a God who is a heavenly father who's not looking for you to do something to earn his approval? Come on. Some of you men, dads, still live this day trying to make your dad look your way and say, I'm proud of you. I hope you know the Father in heaven says you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything to make me proud of you. 
man, this is a heavenly father. And for me, hearing those kinds of words were like, I don't get it. I don't comprehend it. Why? Because the relationship of my earthly father impacts the relationship of my heavenly father. So I had to start to shift the way that I see the heavenly father and not allow the impact of the earthly father impact the way that I see the heavenly father. Does that make sense? Third thought, write this in. Father wounds are most often the result of a father's unwise decisions. That's the reason that I wanted to start this way because it's important for us to put our minds around this as we unpack this uh, scripture that we're going to unpack today because you trace all these wounds by earthly fathers, you narrow down to this thought that father wounds are most often the result simply of a father's unwise decisions. You think about every father wound that's ever been inflicted upon a person in this world, you can trace it back down to an unwise decision. He shouldn't have said that. He shouldn't have went there. He shouldn't have got in the car. He shouldn't have called her. He shouldn't have gone on social media. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have responded that way. He shouldn't have left. He shouldn't have went after the money. He shouldn't have went after the promotion. I mean, just unwise decisions. And so today, we want to look at James chapter 1, because the good news is James gives some insight how we can minimize the damage, if you would, to our own children in a way. And if you're a mom, you can certainly listen in. It doesn't matter your age. This is applicable for everyone in the room. What I mean by that is we're going to wound people in our lives because we're not perfect. But James gives some really good insight how we can minimize that, and I want to show it to you. It's James chapter 1, verse 5. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, and James is writing to a people who are in the midst of a trial. We know that because he says, consider it pure joy if you're in a trial. So he's talking to people who are in a trial. And while writing about trials, he writes this, James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, pause. Anybody lack wisdom? Okay, we've got a lot of unwise people in the house. Amen. The amazing is, it's always in and crazy that uh, people don't know how to respond the first time yet, so let's try it again. Any, any unwise people in the house? Anybody could use a little more wisdom? Or everybody's like, nah, I'm tapped out. I'm... Tank is full of wisdom, man. No unwise decisions for me. Every purchase I make, spot on. Perfect decision. Every choice of food I eat, perfect every time. Okay. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, now we should all listen in because he's like, if you lack wisdom at any point in your life, I want to help you out. And that's what I'm here to tell you today. Because one, I guess I want us as earthly fathers to be better dads. I want earthly mothers to be better mothers, sons, daughters, okay, spouses, husbands, wives, right? So we can all learn from this. If any of you lacks wisdom, I'm going to pause because I want to unpack wisdom, James writes a little more about wisdom before we get into what he says after this, okay? So don't, don't repass it. Now let's go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 13, all right, on your notes, you can skip down to segments right there. He unpacks wisdom a little more in what it is. Wisdom, by the way, is a Greek word we get Sophia from, okay? means wisdom. I want to unpack it, though. Look how James teaches on it. He says, who is wise 
and understanding among you. Let them show it by their good life. Now, in James chapter 3, James is talking to teachers or people who are aspiring to be teachers because at the very beginning of James chapter 3, he says, if anyone wants to be a teacher, listen up. So then he goes into talking some more. So he's talking to a group of teachers, but certainly still applicable to all. And what he's saying is, you've got a lot of head knowledge, but you need to begin to show something. Watch what he says. Let them show it by their good life. So wisdom has got to go further than knowledge. Did you catch that? Because he's talking to teachers. So yeah, just because you have a lot of head knowledge doesn't mean you're wise. This is where he's going, all right? He says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. You ever led a smart man who was an idiot? Has anyone, raise your hand, hi. Wives, raise your hand. You're not talking about him. You're talking about the guy you broke up with, the Mary. I get it, but you know. But the point is, you meet a lot of smart people, but they make a lot of dumb decisions, right? They make a lot of unwise decisions, okay? This is his point. Hey, good to aspire to be a teacher, but I need you to show wisdom. This is how you show wisdom. This is where he's taking them. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Still in the context of talking about wisdom. Such wisdom, watch what he says, does not come from heaven. Uh, if I could grab your Bible, I would, under, I would circle that, I would I would underline it for you, okay? Does not come from heaven. That means there's a wisdom that does not come from heaven. Did you hear me? There's a wisdom that does not come from heaven, but is earthly, one, unspiritual, two, and demonic, three. He's talking to people who are aspiring to be teachers he says, first of all, let's get this out of the way. Wisdom is not head knowledge. All right, let's go beyond that. I need you to also understand that wisdom can come from three places. The flesh, earthly, unspiritual, demonic influence. There is wisdom that does not come from heaven. One of the first wise things that you can begin to consider is that not all wisdom comes from God. Any wisdom that does not come from God is either earthly, unspiritual, or demonic, which is amazing to me because of how many times we people run to all things but God for wisdom. I need wisdom on leadership. So we run to a bookstore about leadership. I need wisdom on finances. So we go find the New York's bestseller time book on finances. Did you catch what I'm telling you? He said, there is wisdom that does not come from heaven, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Continues on. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. 
But then he says, verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, circle line that one, underline that one, highlight that one, comes from heaven. So there's a wisdom that comes from heaven and there's a wisdom that comes from hell. Can we say it that way? Do you see the contrast? He says, oh, this kind of wisdom is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Okay, so I want to unpack some of these terms from the context only of comes from heaven, okay? We're going to look at some of the wisdom that comes from heaven. Again, this is all going to go back to James chapter 1, verse 5. The word Sophia, wise, is a technical term used in Jewish culture for teachers. Uh, a, scri- a scribe, a, a rabbi, it would be used on or used for to describe. James is writing to people, of course, who want to be teachers, but it's not their knowledge, it's their behavior that he's concerned with. It's not just head knowledge, real wisdom and understanding will show in their lives by their good deeds. So, a couple of words here. Let's unpack the word pure. He says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure. It's a Greek word that means the absence of sinful attitudes. Now, come on, dads, follow me on this. We're trying to become more wise. Okay, what's, what's, what's the wisdom that comes from heaven? Well, it's pure, first of all. What is pure? He's not talking about sexual purity alone. It's talking about a sinful attitude. Now, just think about how much better decisions you would make in your life if you didn't carry a sinful attitude. Think about how many unwise decisions come from a sinful attitude. All right, so he says, that is not wise living. Wise living is pure. It doesn't have the attitude of a sinful attitude. It doesn't have wrong or false motives. Another word that he uses is peace-loving or peaceable in some translations. It means that a man could have the ability to be gentle and kind, but firm when needed. It's not a softy, but has the ability to be, ability, dad, to be gentle and kind. Some fathers inflict wounds because they feel like if I am gentle or kind, it somehow reduces my manhood. No, I think Jesus can be gentle and kind. Have you ever heard the Father's voice? Really? Because the Father's voice, as I hear the Father's voice, as I see it in Scripture, he is a God who is gentle. Oh, he is kind, but he is also very fierce. He has the ability to be gentle and kind. But he also can be fierce when he needs to be. uses another word, and some will say peace-loving or considerate. Another word here, instead of the word considerate, they'll use as gentle in some translations. The man who knows how to forgive, this is the Greek word that really meant, the word considerate, by the way, is the word, the man who knows how to forgive when strict justice gives him the perfect right to condemn. You're gentle. You're considerate. That is, you deserve this punishment, but I'm going to withhold that because although I could 
reason why I should do that. I can see your heart behind that, so I'm going to adjust the punishment. When many father wounds were inflicted because a father didn't know how to adjust that, and everything you did was worth the spanking or this or that or whatever it may have been because they don't know how to adjust that. Again, he's talking to teachers, so this makes sense because these are going to be people who are going to be leading something. Think about bosses even, right? And so these are people who are going to be leading uh, their churches or their organization in some case. You, you could say that if you want. Understand uh, how to forgive and when strict justice gives them the perfect right to condemn somebody. It says submissive. Some translations use willing to yield. Okay, this is a Greek word that simply meant to easy to persuade, meaning not being so stubborn is another way of saying it, not being unbendable. Submissive. What does submissive mean? What is a submissive leader? What is a submissive father? It's, it's, it's I'm not so rigid. I'm flexible. I, I, can be, I can bend to this a little bit, depending on the scenario or situation. Being willing to listen and to reason. To reason with the culture and the environment or to reason with a person, to reason with a child, to reason with a decision that's being made. He talks about this in part of wisdom coming from heaven. Full of mercy, full of good fruit, more about the behavior of the man. The wisdom of a person can be seen by the fruit it produces, how they conduct their lives. If you want to see more about the fruit, you go read Galatians, right? Peace, love, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit. This is the type of wisdom. There's a key understanding to understand when I talk about wisdom. Write this into your notes. Wisdom, what he's alluding to, what James is getting at, is that wisdom is the ability to use the knowledge that you have correctly. It's one thing to have knowledge to the teachers he's saying, but you've got to be able to take that knowledge and apply it and use it correctly. I can have the knowledge of God's word, but if I don't know how to apply it, I am unwise. I've got to apply it. I've got to uh, have the ability to use it correctly. And this is what is marking the wisdom of a person. And the lesson to the teacher was wise teachers don't just have knowledge. They display it by how they live. So you could go back to verse 5, and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Now we understand a little bit more about what wisdom should look like, or maybe, or at least where it's from, if it's from heaven or if it's from hell, we'll call it hell, being those earthly or demonic forces. If any lack wisdom, he said, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, Blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The word ask doesn't mean to be a small request like, man, just ask God. It actually is a Greek word that means to crave. It means literally to beg. Beg. 
beg. Like, God, I'm begging you for wisdom here. Like, I want your wisdom from heaven here. Calling out for it is one definition. To call for, to yearn after, to crave, to desire. Like, I want your wisdom here. Not just knowledge, but taking that and then being able to use it correctly. And it notices that it says, I want you to ask him. I think that's important because that means that God is saying, I'll give it to you, but only when you ask first, because asking requires humility. And if you can't humble yourself to come to ask God, then you're not in the position to be a wise person in the first place. Because the first step to wisdom is you got to humble yourself. See, this is about how you conduct your life. No, no, if you don't go to God for help, then you're unwise. This is James' whole point of wisdom. Run to God for help. That's what God wants. Humble yourself. Ask him for help. Don't ask somebody else. Ask him. This is humility, going to him. Lord, I need you. Ask God. Oh, and by the way, he says God gives generously. Or generously means simply or openly, freely. God is not clench-fisted. He's open-handed. He wants to give wisdom to you. Regardless of your age, he wants to give you all the wisdom he has. So he says, come, ask, I'll give it to you. And he even goes further to say, and I love this, without finding fault. If you read the King James or New King James or some translations, you'll see the word without reproach. No reproach. No condemnation, in other words. Uh, No, I'm not going to resent you for asking. I'm not going to shut the door. I'm going to sit on the front porch and you can come to me for as much counsel as you want. Even if it's about the same topic over and over and over and over again, you might get the same answer, but you can keep coming as much as you want. This is how desperately God wants to give wisdom to his children. And then James goes on, verse 6, and he says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should expect to receive anything from the Lord, and then it makes this big statement, such a person is double-minded, double-minded. This is a Greek word, and it means to be double-souled, two-souled. It's this idea that the man who is tossed to wind and back in the wave is back and forth all the time, up and down all the time, unstable in all they do because they have two souls. Now, if you think about it, the soul is the seat of where your mind, your will, and your emotions are. Your will means your desires. So where your soul is, which we're talking about in this series, you have a soul, and the soul is messed up. And the spirit wants to help the soul out, and the soul needs the spirit to help the soul out because the soul's messed up, and they're trying to come into alignment with one another because the soul has desires. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart... The inner man, the soul, is, de- is desperately wicked and sick. We talked about that in week one. So the soul needs help, and the spirit wants to help the soul. 
And he says, here, it's like a double-souled individual. This person is like back and forth. They're, they're double-souled. What does that mean? That means their mind is in one place, their heart is in another, and they're back and forth between the two all the time. One part of their, one part of their soul is wanting the things of God, but the other part of their soul doesn't. And so they're back and forth, back and forth, and they waver and toss back and forth because they haven't fully surrendered their life over to one. They're double-souled, double-minded, and you'll know if you're a double-minded person because you're going to be unstable in everything you do. This is not about making decisions only. This is about like, you know, where do we go to a, a, a restaurant? Okay, this is much bigger than that. This is about being indecisive about who you follow. Y your mind is saying, I know I probably should follow Jesus, but the heart says, I don't want to. Double-minded, double-souled. Because the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. I have a desire to do the things of God, but my mind is saying this. My thoughts are saying this, but my, my desire is there. My desire is there, but my mind is saying this. You are double-minded, double-souled. You will be unstable in all that you do. This is not good. You won't receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because you're double-minded, double-souled. That's not Jesus' way of punishing you. Jesus actually warned us of this. In Matthew 6, he talked about no one can serve two masters. You can only have one master. That's why the first step to wisdom is to what? Fear the Lord. You can only serve one master. Choom this day whom you will serve, right? You only get one. One master. Anything other than that is double-souled. Double-minded, unstable. But when you decide, when a person decides to no longer be double-souled, but they say, you know what? I'm not double-minded. I am, I am consistent. I am, the Lord is my shepherd. He is the one in charge. He's the master of my life. Here's what happens. The soul gets to alignment with the spirit, and now they are synced up, and they are not unwavering. They are not unstable. They remain steady because they're in pace with one another. And this is what James is wanting us to understand as it relates to wisdom and living in a wise way. A true believer can't be certain, a true believer can't be certain and doubt at the same time. This will cause instability. Here's James' point, write this in. When asking God for wisdom, <laughs> this is gonna be mind-blowing don't doubt God's wisdom. Let me unpack why I wrote that in that way. This is so, I, I always want any sermon I, I teach that I hope you walk out and go, okay, that clicked. That was helpful. I used to sit in class all the time and be like, I didn't hear half of the thing the person said. And I was like, get it to me elementary style. That's why I tried to do my best. I got to dumb it down for me sometimes just to teach it, just to help you. I know some of you are so much smarter than me. But I just want you to, to hear what I'm saying here. This is, I want you to find this so helpful. Lean in on this one. Here's how a huge way of knowing if you're double salt. 
double-minded. He gives you his wisdom and you don't take it. You doubt it. You pick this up, which is where his wisdom lies, and you question it. You doubt it. If that's the way you live your life, you will be unstable in 